You're listening to America's Entrepreneur, the podcast designed to educate, entertain, and inspire you in your personal and professional journey. I'm your host, Aaron Spatz, and on the podcast, I interview entrepreneurs, industry experts, and other high achievers as they detail their personal and professional journeys in business. My goal is to glean their experiences into actionable insights that you can apply to your own journey. If you're new to the show, we've spoken with successful entrepreneurs, Grammy award-winning artists, best-selling authors, chief executives, and other fascinating minds with unique experiences. We've covered topics such as how to achieve breakthrough in business, growing startups, effective leadership techniques, and much more. If you strive for continual self-improvement and enjoy fascinating and insightful conversation, hit the subscribe button. You'll love it here at America's Entrepreneur. We're going to jump right into it this morning. I am, am so excited to welcome Darvin Schmidt to the program. Darvin comes to us from Constructive Transformations. He's got a he's got a background in strategic planning, mergers and acquisitions, finance. We'll I'll let him do all the explaining as we as we jump into this. But Darvin, I just want to welcome you, man. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Oh, thank you for having me, Aaron. Appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you. Certainly, certainly. So my, my favorite leadoff question is, where are you Where are you originally from? Uh, so I'm originally from uh, western Nebraska. I grew up in the panhandle of Nebraska. Um, you know, I like to tell people, uh, reference it two ways. One is uh, I grew up about 40 miles north of uh, Cabela's original flagship store. Um and uh, then I, I also reference uh, that um, I go uh, on a farm about a mile from Chimney Rock, if you're familiar with the Oregon Trail in the pioneer days. Wow. I grew up near that famous landmark. So, um, yeah. Yeah, right, right there in the, heart, in, in the heart of America. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's, that's right. right. Yeah, that's really cool. So, you know, share with us a little bit of your journey then. So you you've had you've had quite the uh, quite the exciting career. It looks like for you, a lot of it got started back with the Southwest Securities, and then you just you just kind of went from there. So take us on a little bit of a tour with you on you know, how how you got started in into the into the work that you're doing right now. Yeah, actually, it goes back a little bit further than that. Okay. I mean, uh, Southwest Securities is sort of my post-business school career. But uh, yeah, uh, I grew up on a farm. I was a little uh, <clears throat> wiry kid. Uh, didn't like farming. My dad grew up on a farm, loved it. I hated it. So um, I couldn't wait to get uh, to go to college and, and pick a career that wasn't uh, farm related. And so uh, I went to school in Chicago, um, got an economics degree, and uh, came out of school and moved to Dallas. That was my first job was uh, was in Dallas, and I've been here ever since. And um, as an economist, I got a job. Uh, uh, as a trained economist, I actually got a job uh, doing economic analysis. And my first job out of out of college was. Um, uh, helping to deregulate the telecommunications industry. Did a lot of rate case work, which is you know, expert witness work uh, in the public utility commission arena and the administrative, what they call administrative law courts rather than civil courts. So I did, uh, um, did a lot of economic analysis to set rates for the uh, regional bell operating companies. Um, and um, 
did that for a couple of years. Um, then uh, when JCPenney moved down here from New York, they were looking for economists and demographers. And, and uh, so I decided to join them uh, and work for them and uh, buy myself a little bit of time to decide whether I wanted to go to law school or business school. And then um, I went to business school. And when I got out, I, I worked for Arthur Anderson for a little while doing, uh, I did valuation advisory services, valuation, litigation support, I, I bankruptcy, restructuring, turnaround work, you name it. Anything under the financial advisory services uh, umbrella I did. Wow. Um, but I wasn't an accountant. So at one point they came to me and said, when are you going to be an accountant? I said, never. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an economist. Uh, I'm not, I'm not a CPA nor, you know, uh, did I even qualify for the CPA exam? Cause I didn't take, you know, the requisite CPA. Course. Right. No, it's so funny because it, so it's funny. I, my, my undergrad also is in uh, economics. So a lot of people just assume that it's like this, it's this finance related degree. And I'm like, guys, no, it's like this weird crossover between business and finance, but it's mostly, you know, I mean, once you get into the microeconomics, sure, you're getting you're getting a little bit more into the weeds, but it's it's a lot more you know higher level type stuff, at least at least from my experience. But what's really cool about your story is like you had this really interesting opportunity coming out of school to go put that degree to work because that's that doesn't happen all the time, at least. At, at least looking back on the job market, and maybe it was the maybe it was the time that I was getting out of school and, and some of the career decisions I that I'd made. But the the job market for economists typically required a lot of experience, maybe even an advanced degree in order to be even considered for something like that. So I I, I just make that observation. It's just it's really cool that your first like your first thing out of school is I mean you were you were doing stuff that really made a difference that was really detailed, some pretty critical, some some pretty critical things that you're working on. Yeah. Well, I mean, my economics degree is from the University of Chicago, which is known for sure. economics and they have yeah. a very quantitative program. So, yeah. you know, I, when I got out of college, I had I had, you know, calculus, advanced mathematics, econometrics, statistics. Uh, oh, man. And and uh, the first company I worked with was sort of a think tank consulting firm that you know, we did some high level stuff. In fact, uh, a lot of uh, our our work uh, depended upon some in-house software that we developed. And it was wow. microeconomic based uh, uh, computer uh, software applications, okay. which, you know, I, I uh, that was my first foray into coding. I didn't write the code. We had coders, but I we, we updated this software, you know, to include macroeconomic theory and I don't want to get, I can go on and on and talk about yeah, it. But, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, but, but, you know, you have to understand the code to be able to see if they program the economic principles correctly. And so sure. it was my first foray into, uh, into the IT world. So, That's so funny. Yeah. yeah. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll back up and not go, not go down that rabbit trail. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's that that's really it's really fascinating because 
want, yeah, you're coming from a great school that, that is known for its economics program. Yeah. And, and yeah, no, I mean, it, that's just, it's, it's a fascinating discussion. Maybe, maybe, if, maybe if we uh, had, had a lot more time, we could talk more yeah. about that, but yeah. no, but, but so, so you went to business school, you know, had that experience and then from there, then what, like, what did that do for your career? And then what, what were you working on for the next several years as you, as you kind of led up into some of the other things you're working on? Cause I, I mean, I'm looking at your background. I mean, you, 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 you've had quite a few different, really interesting opportunities. I just, I'd love to learn more about how those opportunities presented themselves to you. Yeah. Well, I, I went back to school, got a degree in finance from the University of Texas at Austin. I loved Texas. I had, you know, been here. Uh, I, you know, I wanted to stay here because I could immediately see that we're going to be still plenty of opportunities in Texas. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I went to school and then um, spent some time at Arthur Anderson, as I said, uh, wasn't going to be a long term fit because it was not, you know, not my goal to get a CPA and the accountancy world. You have to, if you want to be a partner, you got to be a CPA. That's uh, for the most part, that's the truth. And so um, I wanted to stay in finance. So, uh, you know, my experience at Arthur Anderson get me into uh, Southwest Securities. They were at the time um, trying to build a full service regional investment banking firm which includes corporate finance work, investment bankers, uh, sell side research, um, uh, sales and trading, you know, a syndicate department. And so uh, I, I timed it pretty well and uh, was the first uh, investment banker hired under that new mandate. And, uh, and so I spent six years there uh, doing traditional investment banking work and, um, you know, we, we we think of us as a mini Wall Street firm. You know, we weren't doing the big uh, big deals that Merrill Lynch or Bear Stearns or Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs did. But we did that. We had that model on a, on a regional scale. OK. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was uh, just a lot of hard work, a lot of effort. But, um, yeah, I did a lot of technology related investment banking work because of my experience in the telecom field. Uh, okay. A lot of the rate case work I did, I I had to learn the telecom network from the bottom up. And so I learned, you know, literally the switches and, and tandem switches and how it all worked and the software they used to, you know, uh, route calls. And and so I, I got sort of that technical engineering side from telecom. So it was pretty easy for me to understand other, you know, software companies, other hardware companies, uh, and of course the internet when the internet came along. Um, and so, yeah, I had, I, uh, we, we competed as a, uh, as hard as we could. And I've, I've done, I've raised money, um, uh, for startups to, you know, working with later stage companies and private equity, whether it's M and a or raising capital, uh, I'm, and I've even taken five companies public as an underwriter and wow. one of them as a sole underwriter where Southwest Securities was the only investment bank underwriting the public offering. So we assumed all the risk. Holy cow. Well, that, yeah. that's, that's something we don't get to talk about, ev- you know, every day, but what, like, what is the, what does that process look like for a lot of companies? It's, it, you have a company that they're, they're, 
their performance is X and they're, and they're considering going public. And so one, help us all understand what, what drives a company, first of all, to think that they would like to go public. And then two, what, what is that process like behind the scenes in order to even make yeah. that possible that, that you're so heavily involved with? Well, I, I think there are a number of factors that go into that decision, but obviously uh, it's, it, you know, timing wise uh, and scale wise, the company um, should be well positioned to be received as a, you know, a company in the public domain. So, you know, there, there is a, um, you know, there's a certain size. I mean, it's not a, a uniform size for every company, sure. but it's one where, you, you know, you have the infrastructure in place so you can, you know, now you can scale the business uh, even further. Um, you, ha- you know, you have enough support in employees to have a, a scalable business and, and um, you know, resources to do that. Part of the reason also is just liquidity for your earlier investors. You know, a lot of them are venture capital or angel and, you know, the you know, they don't want to, they don't want to have um, illiquid investments for the rest of their, you know, fund life, the, the life of the fund. So, you know, there's pressure to, to, to go public so that they can at least liquidate some of their holdings. Um, you know, I, I, I think the public, the public, uh, the IPO market has its cycles too. Sometimes it's very popular and sometimes it's not popular. Right yeah. now, I think a lot of a lot of what you see, I mean, you still see a few very large tech companies go public, um, pharmaceutical companies go public. Um, it, it, you know, it, I think I think the, uh, another another reason which uh, um, companies go public is it does provide um, easier access to capital when you're when okay. you're public. Yeah, you you can do a an IPO and then you can do a secondary offering. You can keep doing secondary offerings. It's just that you know you have socks issues and you know public uh, d- uh, disclosure issues that that are also a burden to a public company, uh, a necessary requirement. But when you reach a certain level and you have the in-house resources to manage all of those uh, disclosure requirements that the SEC requires of a public company, it does provide a much easier uh, way to get access to capital and large amounts of capital. Wow. Yeah, no, because there's just there's so many different things from a compliance standpoint that that companies have to. I mean, you you see, I mean, you, you go to the investor relations tab of any major company's website or you, you know, you go scroll through the different SEC filings and you'll see just page after page after page of just all sorts of different disclosures. And if you're just trying to get to an AK or a 10Q or a 10K, I mean, you've got to wade through all these other documents that you may not even really care to read, but they're, but they're there and they're, and they're an important part of the, of the disclosure process. And like you said, you've got to, you've got to have the infrastructure of the staff to be able to handle that, that burden. Cause that, I mean, that's quite the chore and, and to make sure that you are compliant and that everything is on the up and up when it comes to everything with the SEC. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's primarily, you know, the accounting, the numbers, and then the communication of those numbers, which is the investor relations function. But, yeah. you, you know, I mean, uh, they came out with regulation FD, which is uh regulation fair disclosure. 
uh, uh, many years ago. And that that added some extra burden on the communication side, because what it basically said is you can't give preferential information to mutual fund managers first. You you got to treat, you know, you uh, individuals are the retail side of the market and then, you know, funds are the institutional side. So uh, Reg FD said, you know, you can't pre-release your research uh, to the fund manager. You got to release it to everybody, at, at, you know, at once. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, um, it, 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 it kind of leveled the playing field, but you know what the internet has done is it it's actually brought some white noise to it. That's you right. know, just you know the last the the GameStop case, you know, a, a good example. You get on a chat site or or you know any stock chat sites, and and you know you can get people who are promoting a stock because they own it, and you know people will listen sometimes without doing true you know analysis sure analysis so well for for those that are not you know not as well versed in that in that whole situation and, and i don't know how closely you follow game that that whole gamestop news story because i i do i do remember reading that and seeing just the price of that stock just go through the roof and yeah. it, it was really if i remember right it was it's a group of you know private you know like the the public group retail folks i mean anybody like like myself or just general public we go and we and we could go purchase the stock and and i think the whole i think the motivation behind it and i'll I'll let you fill this all in but the motivation behind it was they're they're trying to screw over institutional uh, investors that that had what I, I think they had like a short position short on, on, yeah. Yeah, on that stock. And so they knew if they, if they drove this price of that stock up, then it was going to cause the, you know, those contracts to expire and they were going to, and, and those folks are going to be left holding a pretty fat bill. Like what was all that about? If, if, if you had time to study that, I, I totally put you on the spot on that one, but yeah, yeah I, I'm not, I, I don't want to, I, I haven't studied in great detail because yeah. quite frankly, I've heard this story so many times. I just try and avoid it. I, I, <laughs> I avoid those, those chat rooms. I, yeah. you know, if I, I manage my own investments. But from a concept standpoint, yeah. but like what, but the, but the concept of it, I, I'm not asking yeah. you to so take what sides. Happens is, yeah. So what happens is, is companies, there are, you know, there may be uh, large funds or institutional money and head you know hedge funds mutual funds uh uh etfs exchange traded funds whatever um that take a short position meaning they've they think that the stock price is going down so what they've done is they they've a short position is where you sell stock that you don't even own with the intent of buying it back at a lower price and and you, you technically you're borrowing the stock from somebody else selling it and then buying it back as it goes down and then giving the stock back to the original owner. That's what shorting a stock is. And so and so, um, um, you know, a large short position in a stock can be an indication that, you know, the stock price, something dreadful is going to happen to drive the stock to cause the stock to go down some you know material event will happen that will v- lower the value of the company well in this case uh, I, th- I think you know retail traders uh the average average trader with uh you know a discount brokerage account um sure. uh, those are the retail guys 
uh, institutional versus versus retail uh, 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 economy there. And and so the retail guys gone on and they started, uh, you know, uh, promoting buying the stock going long. And what that does is it increases the the price of the stock. So the short sellers who sell it at $100, hoping it goes to 50, um, now have to buy it back at a higher price. And so that's how they lose money. And, and, and so short, short investors always want the price to go down. Long investors always want the price to go up. That's fascinating. And then, right. Yeah. And then, and then when you layer in derivatives, options, you know, options are derivative Im- instrument based off the price of the stock. Options can give you leverage. So where you put a dollar in an option and the price of the stock goes down a dollar, the, the option is is price. Uh, you, you could get a three dollar increase in the value of your option. And and so options are a lot more riskier because they have sort of that that um, you, you, you're not buying you know, you're not paying the whole price. You're you're betting on the price increase or decrease in the option market, and so yeah, it it you you can uh, you know you remember the trader at Barclays a few years ago, the rogue trader that you know lost billions of dollars, billions of dollars overnight. He just made bad trades, and you know he yeah. got yeah, and they found out about it, and you know, of course he was fired. But yeah, you know, you just, you gotta, you gotta be smart and it'd be, you know, do your, do your analysis. Yeah, for sure. No, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's a fascinating study. I'm not sure how that, how that whole story is going to play out for, for the retail investors. And I, and then we'll, we'll move on because then we can start getting into a uh, political discussion and a whole bunch of other things that we probably don't want to get into, but, but it's all good. But, but no, so, you know, you've, you've had a lot of different experiences. Like take me through then, you know, your journey at, you know, after Southwest securities and, and, you know, you've now moved on to some other opportunities. What, what was that like for you? Yeah. Well, you know, um, like a lot of people in 2001, I found myself, uh, laid off. Uh, I was doing a lot of investment banking in the dot-com world. And of course, you know, 2001, the dot-com bubble burst, and so, uh, you know, investment banks were shedding their their dot com bankers and research analysts. And I, I was you know, I got caught up in that as well. So um, I found myself uh, looking for another opportunity. And I just I met up with some people and we started to be to see e-commerce company. Wow. Probably the worst time to do it. I knew I would never get any venture capital money or, you know, I had all the contacts and the relationships, but just the wrong time to start, you know, an e-commerce company. So, well, so saturated. I mean, the, the market was already saturated with a whole bunch of, with a whole bunch of tech, like tech related type, you know, the whole internet, you know, boom there. And so like that, that's, pr- that's pretty neat though, that you had like the, you had the gall to go out and do that. But like for, for those that are not as familiar with with that whole you know, period in time because it, it, it's fascinating and again, and and again like I appreciate you sharing it just because it's yeah. it's not every day that you've got a front row seat to some of these things that are happening so ex- explain everybody again just just to make sure we're all on the same playing field here in terms of just general understanding explain to folks 
what happened during the dot-com bubble burst and, and like what what caused the bubble to happen in, in the first place? I know it was just, just, I mean, too big to fail, right? Company, companies just could not, could not, uh, could not lose. And no matter what you did, it was just, it was bound to be a success, but help, help people understand like what happened during that time that, that, that caused the bubble and then what brought it all to a screeching halt. Yeah, that's, you know, that's been a long time. So uh, sure. I, I'm, I'm going to couch my answer because uh, a lot of this, uh, you know, I may have forgotten a little bit, but essentially what, you know, um, the Internet caught on. It was a technology that had a ride during its commercialization, getting in the public domain. Right. And so and so you couldn't lose because anything that had a dot com and the company name um People were enamored with the, the, the this novel technology or this novel way of of communicating or sending information. You know, the cost of the information was went down to nothing, zero. And so people were, you know, visionaries were imagining business models where, you know, the cost of information was so high. Now it's so low. And so, um, you know, and and. You know, everybody kind of got on the bandwagon and um, uh, the novelty of it kind of overtook sound, rational analysis and good business decision making. And so what would happen is is uh, just this exuberance in valuations, you know, stock prices were now not based on 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 tomorrow's earnings, but earnings 10 years from now. Or, you know, I still remember research reports, I, I've got them somewhere where, you know, research analysts were valuing companies based on eyeballs, you know, views, page views, right? And, you know, for an e-commerce company, the only way they make money is if you buy something from them. And yet, you know, they're valuing the company based on the number of eyeballs that come to the landing page rather than the revenues that, you know, Intra conversions and profit margin that comes from buying their products, their goods and services, right? And so that's what happened. And then, and then, of course, you know, like everything, you can't keep that pace up. But you know, when the public companies in in that space started reporting numbers and they weren't great numbers or they didn't meet expectations, then that causes you know everybody to readjust how they look at at those investments. And then that's what happened is people just started fleeing. They realized you can't value a, you know, you can't a a, a company with 10 customers at a billion dollars, right. Or something like that. And then, and that's what happened. Then it's a ripple effect. It affects everybody in that sector. And that's, that's kind of what happened. It was, um, you know, people were literally making investment decisions uh, and com- companies were going public and putting .com in their names simply because it was driving the you know interest in their in their stock much higher just having .com in a name. And you know if you take the .com off and you put it in the manufacturing sector and you start forcing people to look at you know cash flow statements, income statements, and growth rates and financial metrics, there was no you know. There were no numbers that justified those valuations. So that's that's kind of what happened. It just the whole, the whole, you know, capital markets world started giving these guys um, leniency in terms of how they valued companies and stuff. And then it caught up with them. 
Wow. That's crazy. I mean, because that was, that was back when, I mean, you could, uh, the, the ability for someone to connect to the internet was now at their fingertips. I mean, they could connect from their home and it just, it created this, this entirely new experience and this, it really access to a whole new world. I mean, it really was like, it, it was, it, it's like the new world discovery of, you know, Christopher Columbus. I mean, it was like, it was, it was that revolutionary, that revolutionary to business and to the way that, that markets are shaped. And so now you don't, yeah. you're, you're, you're not relying on FedEx to, you know, to, to freight financial statements anymore. You know, you are, you're, you're now, you've got everything at your fingertips or slowly. Right. I mean, I know it wasn't right, instantaneous, right. Yeah. But, yeah. but still. Well, imagine yeah. what, what we would have done in this pandemic had we not been able to order stuff online. Oh my gosh. You yeah, know, I mean, it we, could be much, we, you know, infection rates could be much worse because we would have been forced to go get our, you know, buy our groceries at the store rather than get them delivered or something like that. I mean, yeah. And, and it, you know, that was just, it really was uh, an interesting um, part of our technology, uh, you know, our technology revolution. Um, crazy. Yeah. yeah. Well then, I mean, so, so let's go back, go back to the e-commerce company. So, I mean, yeah, like I, and I said earlier, I'm like, you had the gall to go start that, in, you know, right during all this, was happening so like what what was that like in terms of like you know we've got something we've got an idea we're going to run with this idea and see what happens what well yeah in all fairness uh we didn't we didn't come up with the idea it was a sort of a failed effort by another company okay and uh, my partners happened to be in the web hosting business and so they said well you know you basically came to me and said you think we could turn this into a business or you know, should we shut it down because our client can't pay for it? We said, well, uh, and I said, well, I think we can turn it into a business. So the idea, the 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 the, the idea itself, right, we didn't come up with, but it was uh, the 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 person who did didn't advance very far, and uh, and we we sold I, I sold wedding accessories online, and and there was a uh, somebody who was had a. Um, uh, a wedding magazine and he was trying to start an online business and he didn't get very far, but he was paying hosting fees. And, and, you know, the people I, I connected with said, you know, if we shut this down, we've got, you know, we're already out on the hook for, you know, his hosting fees. Uh, what do you think we should do? And I, I, that's when I jumped in and, you know, and then, and then we grew it from there, but um, you know, the idea itself, uh, we didn't put that on paper, but yeah, it was, it was difficult. You know, it's difficult to bootstrap any company. Um, and, but we did and, you know, put a little bit of money in, but, um, you know, you just have to be very careful. And of yeah. course, uh, you can't approach startups like a regular nine to five job. It's just not going to be successful. So it's a lot of late hours and, you know, you wear many hats. I mean, I, I was COO uh, uh, for the most part. I was the CFO too. I did uh, the financial planning. I, I didn't do a lot of the uh, the accounting. We had a controller, but you know the financial planning, um, uh, dealing with uh, um, you know partners, strategic partners. I mean, I did search engine optimization. We did everything we could to drive traffic to the site and convert that traffic into revenue, into orders. Um, but we, yeah, we had an amazing team for a small company. We, 
We had probably an advanced order fulfillment management system, you know, it helped us manage our inventory tied in with our shippers. And we, we were even probably one of the first companies to sell internationally. Wow. Um, and going through that process is a big deal. You, when you, when you cross borders, now you got, you know, you dealing in the customs world and, you know, you're dealing with a lot more regulation and you, you know, you got to know where the, your parts come from. Cause if you want to sell to this country, they don't, you know, you know, that have to know their laws and they may not accept any, you know, components that were manufactured in this country. And then, you know, it's, uh, it can get nasty um, for a small company, but, but we did it and, and, um, and, and, and learned a lot. I mean, it was, uh, uh, you know, it was my first entrepreneurial effort and uh, I, I enjoyed it. I just, uh, you know, you, it's a young man's game to start a business. Um, and I, I, you know, I got, I, I spent a lot of time in a three-year period and I was, you know, burnt out a little bit. And, and, um, and uh, the other thing was, is I, I found out I, I had no connection to my products and that's okay. important. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not a bride to be. Um, and so I really lacked the necessary connection to the products. Um, and, and so I said, you know, an offer came along and so I took it and, 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 you know, we cashed out some of, but most of us cashed out. I think some, if I remember correctly, uh, some of our, our shareholders stayed in with the, the company that bought us out and, and, um, yeah, wow. I don't think it survived very, very long after uh, uh, my my exit. But uh, but uh, it we built a nice little business uh, up to that point. No, that's great. I mean that that that's really cool seeing like your first entrepreneurial you know venture and how that and how that whole thing played out and knowing that you know despite the fact that you didn't have maybe connection to the product, you still were able to grow you know, something successfully and, you know, you had a, had a great team of people and you guys were able to make it happen and learning all these different complexities. I mean, you, you, you make it sound so easy and I know it's, I know it's no, very, it's very not, difficult. It's not. I mean, but, <laughs> yeah, but it starts with, you got to take a step forward, right? Whether, you know, I mean, we looked at, you know, at that time there was this whole industry growing up a search engine optimization. You had pay-per-click advertising, but you had, you know, Overture and, and Google AdWords that were pay-per-click. And, you know, uh, if, if you're an online business, the, you know, uh, it's, it's your, your operation only kind of exists virtually. I mean, yeah, you got physical location, but, but, you know, we're not, we're not inviting people over to our offices or a warehouse to go buy. We don't have cash registers at our office. Right. And so, you know, marketing is an online world that matches your your business. And so, you know, we had to learn to play that online marketing game, pay-per-click and, you know, you know yeah. that, uh, search engine optimization, getting, uh, you know, banner advertising and and all of that. And so, you know, we didn't have a, mar- a deep marketing staff. So right. I learned how to do a lot of that. I did, you know, cool. I learned Photoshop and did animated gifts and, and all that. And, that's so cool. I know. mean, and, and that, and that's back when, 
I'm just, I'm sitting here just you know, salivating at the idea of like some of these ad words of just what the cost would have been back then for, for certain types of certain, certain types of advertising and certain, certain assets that you can get your hands on because now it's become so hyper competitive in terms of trying to, uh, you know, box your, your competitors out and, and, you know, may, not, not only establish dominance, but maintain that dominance, whether it relates to search engine optimization or uh, many of the other best practices and search engine optimization is not even limited to just the website. There's a thousand other things you can be doing, you know, offsite that can help contribute to your ability to be found. And so it's, it's, it's a, it's fascinating. It's really, it's really interesting to me just to, and I'm talking purely selfishly just because it's really cool to hear how they see where it all kind of started, you know, back, you know, right at right around right. 2000, 2001, 2003 and, and so on. And then looking now, where it's come, I mean, it's come so far in these, you know, just in these last twenty years. But would would love to would love to then kind of switch topics on you, and I'd I'd love to learn more about like what's been one of the biggest, like what what's been one of the biggest challenges that, that you've had to overcome in your career. I mean, you've you've had so many different so many different opportunities, and we may have already touched on you know any number of one of these, but but what's been one of the biggest moments in your career where you felt like, man, that was that was really tough, but it was really rewarding. Like really, like I really felt like I, not only did I, like I, I gained something. I mean, maybe it was mon, you know, monetarily or maybe it was just a you know great lesson. So as soon as we come back from break, I'd like, I'd like to dive into something you know, related to that. So, um, but you know, we're, we're incredibly grateful to have just, you know, amazing sponsors. I just wanted to shout out window craft, window craft, if, if you hadn't had a chance, you can actually go back and watch an episode with Luke Morrow. He was on, I believe it was last week, uh, who's the owner and president of, of Windowcraft. So they have a showroom in Dallas. They also have uh, offices up in Gainesville. And so if you are in the market looking for you know, like really like high-end windows, doors, like so like architectural aluminum, iron, steel, bronze, they do historical replications of just about anything. Uh, but then they also work residential, but they do commercial, they do mun municipal colleges. So they do a lot of different types of work. What's really awesome about these guys is they they have their own in-house installation crews. So they're not outsourcing and farming out jobs to you know all these different packs of subcontractors. They're all people that are employees of the company. So they have this you know outstanding knowledge of all the intricacies involved with how this window or how this door actually goes in. So it's one thing to buy and order it. I mean, I mean, I think anybody can buy and order most of this stuff, right? But it's the expertise and the professionalism of understanding which product you need and then how to make sure it goes in properly. And so your and so that your business or your home just looks fantastic. So they're a really, really great group of of, of people. They service a tremendous area. It's like a 200 mile radius from DFW. So they're all over the place. I do think they do a lot of work like Plano, South Lake, Fort Worth, Colleyville, West Lake, Dallas. They, they, they kind of maintain, you know, a, a, a position really there in, in the heart of DFW. So give, give those guys a shout, incredibly grateful for their sponsorship and their support of the show. So Darvin, I just want to get right back into it. Just really one, I just appreciate you being so open and, uh, it, and going down a couple of these different lanes here, but you know, what's been, what's been some of the, some of the more challenging, I mean, you've already covered some pretty, pretty big challenges, right? But, but right. what, what, what are, what are some big things that you've learned through your career and some of the things that you've seen? And, and um, we just, I just love to get a little bit more insight into some of the, some of the things that you've seen and how you overcame some of these different challenges. 
Um, that's a very broad question. I mean, that's, uh, it is, uh, uh, I mean, or we could even pivot into like the, the FDIC. Cause I saw that you're sure. a senior program manager there. And so that, again, that's something that, you know, you don't meet someone every day who, who worked, you know, federal deposit insurance yeah. corporation. Like that's, that's not something you run into all the yeah. time. So like, what, what, like, what was that experience like for you? Well, it, it, yeah, actually, uh, it just it, it starts with the difference between the private sector and the public sector. I mean, I, I, I but you know, my my official title was a team lead at the FDIC. Um, that's because the government uses a, a completely different you know title system and and stuff. And trying to translate that into the private sector, uh, I, I did a lot of uh, you know, it's very hard to to do that, but. But but essentially, yeah, it was uh, helping the FDIC navigate the uh, the banking crisis uh, post two thousand eight, and um, yeah. so um, that was and, probably challenging, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think one of the threads, the unifying threads in my career has been um, uh, people have come to me, or gra- I gravitate toward people who have problems and they don't know where to go to solve them. And I just step up and say, yeah, I think I can do it. Um, here's my approach, you know, let's try it, you know? And, 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 and so I'm not afraid to, to, you know, get into some areas. I spend the time to get into areas just, uh, you know, to learn how to navigate it and, 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 and solve the problem. I, I, and so if it's a new subject, I spend the time to learn the subject, you know, I mean, it takes a little longer, but you got to do that. And so I, you know, I went to, uh, went to work for the FDIC and, and, um, you know, at the time they, they, you know, they were closing 150 banks a year and these were big size banks. So, you know, it's, what do you do with, with those, uh, banks? And, and, um, so that's where I brought in some technical skills and my finance skills and, I basically uh, worked uh, it, it, what, what's called post-closing, post-closing, once you close a bank, okay. um, what do you do with it? Well, you, you know, you pay off the depositors. That's what FDIC insurance is. But then all the loans, all the assets of the bank now become owned by the FDIC, actually by receiverships and controlled by the FDIC. But in simple terms, the FDIC. And so, they don't want to run banks. They don't want to own assets. They just want to regulate the industry. So, you know, now you got to build this infrastructure to dispose of all these loans that they inherited from failed banks. Wow. You know, and those loans are being serviced. So people, borrowers are paying money. It's a mortgage on the residential side or a commercial loan. A business is paying off their debt, you know, their principal plus interest. And so that somebody's got to collect the money for you. And so, you know, th- this was just a large scale, uh, you know, pr- problem. How do you integrate all these pieces and keep, you know, keep these loans, uh, um, uh, you know, getting them in the hands of somebody other than the FDIC? And so that's, you know, that's that's what what we did. What I did was I worked with a number of um uh, other folks inside the FDIC that managed all these functions. So we had loan servicing and loan servicing vendors. And that's just trying to figure out how to sell loads and loads of, of loans, bundling. Wow. And and so that's, you know, my, my, my investment banking kind of 
picked up. But, you know, a lot of it was just implementing processes and leveraging software to manage, you know, uh, you, you know, from reporting and dashboarding. It's like, how many loans do we have and how many of these loans do we have and how can we bundle them with other loans that we have? And, and so, yeah. And so it, it was a, a very interesting time. You know, it's just another situation where I was doing some restructuring work and turnaround work and, and capitalization planning and financial advisory planning for uh, portfolio companies of investors that I knew institutional investors I knew around town and, and, you know, the FDIC just had needed a lot of lot of talent, in a lot of areas because, you know, we were shutting down our central banking system or our banking, not our central banking system, but our, our, our bank commercial banking system. And that would have had, you know, it did have an impact on our central banking system having to do QE, you know, uh, quantitative easing and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, I, 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 I'm very proud of that work. I mean, it uh, one is the FDIC is a quasi government agency. It's, um, it you know you it's an insurance company. It lives off insurance premiums, but it's also overseen by Congress, and the labor follows you know government um, the Office of Personnel Management. So in that sense, they are a government agency, not a private insurance company. Wow. And so it is public service and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. I, uh, uh, you know, it's a very interesting work, particularly in a banking crisis and, you know, uh, people should not discount the opportunity to do public service like that. Um, um, and, uh, there are a lot of interesting problems to solve in government agencies, just like in private sector companies. Sure. Well, I mean, and you, you had a you had a front row seat once again to to a whole nother whole nother series of problems, right? So, like, I think that's been for me just kind of looking at you, looking at your career. Like, you, you've had some really amazing opportunities and experiences mm-hmm. to really be a first hand participant in a lot of different things that are that have that have happened. So, whether it's the dot com bubble bursting. And then the the e-commerce wild wild west gold rush that 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 turned into, and then working at the FDIC on the you know on the tail end of a of a huge you know financial crisis when, as it relates to the banking industry. I mean, you've you've gotten to see a lot of different things, and so it's it's definitely one. It's it's pushed you. It's it's helped grow you in into different areas, and I think it's really stretched yeah. you. And that's and that's what's made you yeah. so incredibly valuable in the in the types of work that you do and, and the impact that you have. Because you've seen you've seen the gamut of, of all sorts of different things. And so, tell me about then your transition from FDIC and then into your present role. What is what was that journey like for you there? Well, uh, you know, this is where the story gets uh, not so positive, but um, okay. uh, yeah, the so uh, constructive transformations is really a uh, it's a, a DBA that was at one time registered in Nebraska. I have I, I after the FDIC, uh, um, I, I left the FDIC, uh, did not renew contracts. And because um, I had some elder care issues back in Western Nebraska. Okay. And so I I went back to Western Nebraska uh, uh, sort of mid to late 2016, um, uh, uh, addressing some issues with my father, but uh, uh, was able to basically 
get consulting clients either from from Dallas here or locally there, um, and but was able to work on them there. I could I worked okay. work remote, so I was sort of getting into work remote before the pandemic hit. But I needed some flexibility, um, you know, because I I was uh, I had some um, home health care duties for my father who was ill, okay. and uh, and so. Um, I did that for a little while. Um, my father passed and I moved back to Dallas in, I don't know, late, uh, late 28, mid, mid to late 2018. And then my mother had, had some elder care issues. So I wound up going back to Nebraska and getting her house, uh, sold, moving her into, um, nursing facilities, um, because she was very quickly was not able to take care of herself. Okay. So I, I've been sort of, uh, you know, doing um, self-employed and doing consulting for for people in my network because I needed that flexibility, but also because, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm basically a problem solver anyway, whether I'm a W-2 or 1099. So, uh, you know, it's it's uh, the, the pandemic has made it a bad year. But, you know, for me, it's uh, I, I just. You know, I'm out there trying to network with folks and and I have an extensive network and, you know, there are plenty of problems to solve. Right. So sure. it's it's been a, a, an interesting past couple of years with COVID. But, um, you know, I've, I've been even maybe thinking of starting a, a business in the elder care space myself, uh, counseling, guiding. Right now, there's not much in terms of a social media platform based company, but there's a lot of education people need. And, you know, it's, it's one of those topics where if your parents are getting old, you don't want to wait till the last minute to get prepared. Um, and also for yourself, you don't want to leave your children in a position where you know, they're ill prepared to handle when you can't handle it yourself. Yeah. So I've been looking at some, some, some opportunities there, but, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm basically intellectually curious. Um, you know, I, if uh, somebody mentions something I don't know about it, I will spend time studying it. Um, I, I, you know, to the point where I feel comfortable, I understand it. And, you know, if there's something valuable out of it that I can apply in my everyday life. That's what I do. So I guess that, you know, I'm a product of intellectual curiosity because I've gone, you know, number of different directions, yeah. worked in a number of different environments and, um, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm proud that I'm able to solve people's problems. And I don't think there are many people who uh, have anything negative to say about my work. So sure. what I'm very prou- proud of the most is, you know, my integrity, my reputation. So sure. That's no, it. I mean, yeah, well, I appreciate you sharing all that. And, you know, and, and you know, obviously a little bit you know, sensitive subject there with, with family. And so, I, I mean, I'm it is, what it is. Yeah. Yeah. But I just I'm sorry that you, know, you went through the things that you had to go through. And but like it's really, really interesting observation that you're making, because I think it's something that we're we're all going to be facing. And, and, and people are either in that journey now or, or they're going to be soon. In terms yeah. of, you know, we have an aging population and how do we, how do we handle that? How do we handle it so that everyone is treated well and, and quality of care is high? And, and, you know, what do you got to learn as the person receiving that care? What do you need to learn as the person maybe helping facilitate 
that whole thing happening. There's, there's a lot there. And I, I have, I've had a few close friends of mine that have had to go through, had that have had to go through that. And there's, there's a bit of a learning curve, but there's, there's a lot of different things going on. So I would be curious, like I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to keep tabs on you, man. See, see what, see what I, see what idea, see what idea you start noodling with, because I think it's, um, I, I certainly think there is an opportunity there, but you know, I, I just want to th- thank you, Darwin. Like I, I really appreciate spending, spend so much time with you, but like, what's the, what's the best way people can, can reach out and get, get in touch with you, learn more about the, the work that you're doing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have a LinkedIn profile. I don't have uh, my own website because a lot of the, you know, a lot of what I do is uh, just by referral or through my network. I, I also, you know, I also learned very early on because of my e-commerce days, I, I'm not a fan of a lot of social media. Um, I, gotcha. I, I was an early adopter in Facebook. Never use it. Uh, don't like it. I've eliminated it off of my mobile phone. Um never have tweeted. I think I follow two people. I, 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 there's something to be said about keeping information private and, and, you know, so I try and minimize my, my footprint online, but LinkedIn, a good place. I mean, uh, I disclose my email address and my phone number. You can reach me uh, uh, at any time. And, you know, um, you have a problem that needs solving. If I can't solve it, I usually know somebody who can. So that's terrific. Well, yeah. well, Darwin, I, I again, I just really just want to thank you. I mean, it was a really fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed kind of doing a deep dive on your on your story and on some of the different things that you've seen. It was really it was really really a, a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, this is a great video resume, to be honest with you. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. Long, but uh, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 this is a, you know, this is a great marketing tool and podcasting seems to be growing. Um, and, and I, I think you've hit on something here. Um, you, you know, not just the helping people like me, the other end, but for yourself, you know, sure. uh, um, it's, it's great opportunity. It's the right way to of leveraging the internet to get the right kind of information out there, to be honest with you. For sure. For sure. Well, I greatly appreciate that, man. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to America's Entrepreneur. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review or comment on your preferred social media platform. Share it out with friends, family, coworkers, others in your network. And of course, you can write me directly at Aaron at boldmedia.us. That's A-A-R-O-N at boldmedia.us. Until next time. Thank you.